Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That's the refrain from Psalm 80, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, June the 14th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along today. We're changing it up a little bit today. We're, we're changing uh, the, first, the first two lessons that we have. Um, we had been in Deuteronomy, and we had been in... Um, what was the other one? Oh, Ecclesiasticus. <laughs> I knew there was something there. So, and but we're changing over now, and we're moving to First Samuel in the uh, Old Testament in the uh, Epistle. We're moving from Second uh, Corinthians over to Acts one one to fourteen. We're still in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, so we're we're beginning a new sort of a, a, a cycle in the readings here, and, and we're focusing on on the life of Samuel, and so we're going to look at this for quite a long while. So. Um, it's an interesting story, to say the least. The story of Samuel is, you know, he becomes sort of the first person of the judges who, he's, he's the last of the judges, but he is the first of a new breed. He's the first one to anoint a king for Israel, and it's because they asked him for one. We, we saw that in Sunday's readings, and now here we are, we're beginning at, beginning at the beginning of the story of Samuel, which will be really the story of Samuel, Saul, and David, um, so here we go with the Samuel narrative, and it begins with his parents. So there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim on the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. Elkanah did. And the name of the first one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And so we're told now about the religious life of the family. They go up year by year to worship in Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And so when Elkanah went up to offer a sacrifice, he gave um, the sacrifices, portions of the sacrifice, to Peninnah and her children. And But Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And a rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. Well, there's a lot going on in that little bit right there, right? I mean, is it okay to have two wives? What, what are we looking at here? Is this something that's sanctioned at that time? And in a way, it was, to be honest with you, because um, we know, for instance, that, that the first commandment given to um, mankind was to be fruitful and multiply. And so it, it's thought of a grievous sin and a problem if a man and a woman who are married to one another cannot conceive over some period of time. I think it's 10 years. But it, So if, if during that period of time the wife doesn't conceive, then in order to make sure that this man has the ability, the presumption, by the way, is this the problem is the woman. So in order to make sure this man can keep that commandment to be fruitful and multiply, and Israel will grow and fill the land just exactly the same way it was supposed to happen in um, in the beginning with Adam and Eve. If if they're unable to conceive during at that period of time, then then the man was allowed to take a second wife. He didn't have to put away the first wife, but the presumption again was is that she was the problem. And here that would seem to have been proven correct because what we see is is that that Peninnah has children. In fact, what it says is to all her sons and daughters. So we we have to believe that she had several at least at least. Two, you know, um, but sons and daughters would tend to indicate that that she's he's got she has at least four children, and Hannah doesn't have anything. But but Elkanah loves Hannah, 
So she's not a rejected wife in any sense of the word. And so she's given a double portion to, of the sacrifice. And so it says very clearly, though the Lord had closed her womb, he loved her even though the Lord had closed her womb. And then it's interesting the way that the, the transition is with Peninnah, who poked, provoked her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. I mean, that's just cruel to think about doing that. So, But she was not loved. I mean, we, do we have this whole thing with Rachel and Leah playing out again here? It kind of sounds a lot like the story of Rachel and Leah because one was loved, the other was not loved. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Peninnah used to provoke her, and therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah said, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And the answer is no. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't matter how much Elkanah loves her, because it's, it's not only a commandment, but it's a sign of God's favor for her to have a child of her own. It, she feels the weight of what feels like God's uh, disapprobation because she, he has closed her womb and she's not allowed to have children. It would be a bitter, bitter thing to live with in that culture particularly. It's not good now if somebody wants children to be unable to have them. <clears throat> and then so after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose and she went to the temple. And she gets there and Eli the priest is there leaning or sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you'll look indeed upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. It's this sort of a Nazarite vow that's being taken here. And... Um, so she has promised, Lord, I, I'm not even, I don't even want this thing for me. I just I, I want this child because I want to prove that you love me. I want to prove that you care for me. And if you do that, then I will give him to you all the days of his life. You know, we had to do that recently with Will. We had to give him up to the Lord. He, he belonged to the Lord anyway. But we had to give up our son in, in, in order to get him back. And so Hannah makes this vow that she's going to do that. But Eli just looks at her mouth. That's all he's looking at. And, and he's not hearing anything coming from her. He's just seeing her mouth moving. And he comes to the conclusion that she's drunk. And so he then gets in her face and says, How long are you going to go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And she says, No, no, no. That's not what's going on here at all. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli said, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate. And then we know then that the Lord did indeed remember her. And in due time, she had a son that she called Samuel, because I have asked him from the Lord. And that's what Samuel means, to ask from the Lord, Samuel. Um, but there's this, the plea that she makes here, look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. That's all Exodus language. That's, that's exactly. The Lord sees their affliction and he remembers them and he does not forget them. And so she's pleading for that with that same sort of spirit of Exodus that, that she's under this bitter oppression. It's an oppression from God at some level because she's, she's pleading with him to open her womb. But it's, a, it's an oppression from her fellow wife Peninnah here. And so it, in spite of the fact that Elkanah loves her, that's not enough. She needs this other thing. And, and it, I think it has as much to do with God's favor 
and God's blessing on her as it does anything else. In this parable that Jesus tells over in the gospel in Luke 29 to 19, it's this, it, it, we're coming to the end of his life because he is provoking them. He's telling them the truth, but he's provoking the leaders of the people all at the same time. And the main way that he does that here is he tells a story, a parable that everybody knows, right, is, is exactly about them. The, the story is, is that a, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And so the, he, he let it out, and, and the rent would have been a portion of the proceeds of the, um, of the vineyard. And so at, at the end of a year, he sends his servants to the tenants so that they give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. The portion that's due to him is rent, and rightfully due to him, because it's his vineyard. And so the tenants beat him and send him away empty-handed and then that happens two more times and then the owner finally says what am I going to do I'll send my beloved son perhaps they'll respect him but when the tenants saw him they said to themselves this is the heir let's kill him that the inheritance may be ours and so their presumption here is is the man's died and that's the reason he sent his son and, and they have this odd belief which is really not based in law at all that if they kill the son the heir then they will have the inheritance. I don't know where in the world you'd get that idea, but that's not uh, the way things work. And so what they did, though, that they beat him and threw him out of the uh, vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And they heard this and they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that's written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. True leaders wouldn't fear their people. True leaders would hear the truth, and they would do exactly what we see the elders around the throne in Revelation do, which is bowing and laying down their crowns. But here, Jesus tells this parable, and everybody knows what this story is about. And the proof of that everybody understood it, for the first time people understood the parable, is surely not. I mean, they deeply connected with this parable. They understood what it was. Right from the beginning, the people did. They got it. They knew that, it was, that, that its meaning was that the kingdom was about to be taken from them. The kingdom was about to be given to others because of the way they had treated the prophets, and now the Son is here. And are they going to give glory and honor to the Son, or are they going to do exactly what he says they're going to do? They're going to throw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And that's exactly what's going to happen, because they're going to take him out of Jerusalem. They're going to take him up to Golgotha, and they're going to crucify him there in that place. And so the people know. I mean, their response is, surely not. If you haven't identified with the parable, if it's just a story, then, then that's not the way you respond. Because if you, if you have not identified yourself in the story, you'd look at that and think, well, who are these people who have treated the servants in this way and now treat the son in this way? But no, they understood. They understood that he was talking about the prophets. And they understood that they lived in God's vineyard. And that psalm that begins the... Um, the lessons for today it tells us exactly that, and it uses that language. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. 
The mountains were covered with its shade, its mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. Why, then, have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted in the sun, whom you made strong for yourself. And they know, when Jesus tells this story, that that story is told again about the nation of Israel. And that's the reason they respond with surely not. Because otherwise, if you just listen to the parable, you'd think, well, of course, that's exactly what should happen. Is that they should be destroyed and the vineyard given to others. But they never could imagine that such a thing would happen. And that's the reason they say surely not. They recognize this parable. They understand exactly what he's talking about. And their response is to say, surely this can't happen. We have the promises. And then the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests know what's going on here. They know exactly what he's telling them, but they feared the people because they knew that the people had a particular affinity for Jesus and that if they did anything to him, they tried to harm him in any way, then they would face the the wrath of the people. The people didn't realize how much power they actually had at that moment. In the Acts lesson, what we've got is the beginning of the book of Acts, and Paul is writing to Theophilus, which means lover of God. And so, he says, I've, I've dealt with all that in the first book, the gospel, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then he, tell, he reminds him, okay, remember, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. And then while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise from the Father, which he said, You've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And all they want to know, and they're still looking for this earthly kingdom, Lord, will at this time will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You just see Jesus sighing, rolling his eyes, right? So it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so he's, 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 there's this outward progression. He gets this, Samaria is as far as, as the land would go. I mean, he's speaking really of a Jewish nation, including Samaria, and then extending that to the ends of the earth. They're going to be fruitful and multiply. And that's exactly what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be those who are fruitful and multiply. That's the whole point of the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I command you. And lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. We're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. We're supposed to go out from that place, and then it's supposed to go all over the world. It's an amazing thing how the gospel has gone all over the world already, but, but it's the same commandment. And, and so are we the one who, who's... Uh, womb has been closed like Hannah or are we those who are not going and we're keeping this to ourselves I mean it's, it's charged to us to be bitter in spirit and weep and cry out to the Lord and ask him to remember us and not forget us and make us fruitful but we got to put ourselves and commit ourselves to the task of evangelism if we're going to do that and so after he says these things then he's taken up into heaven and the disciples stand looking into the clouds, and they're joined, it says, by two men standing by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come as the same way you saw him go into heaven. And, and so it's, about, it's basically saying, get, get about the work. You were given something to do. Go ahead and do that. So they went from Mount Olive 
the Mount of Olives over to Jerusalem. It says it's a Sabbath day's journey away. That means it's a limited amount of distance you can walk on the Sabbath. And so that's the reason the Mount of Olives was considered part of Jerusalem in the time of Passover is because that was as far as you could go on the Sabbath. And so you could stay there and be considered part of the city of Jerusalem because that's because you were supposed to be in Jerusalem. And it was a very crowded place at that time. So then they go to the upper room and they're there and they're devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. So those who were coming to seek him because they thought he'd lost his mind in the lesson we had on Sunday are now part of the apostolic band, and it's because of the resurrection of Jesus. But, but let us commit ourselves to a notion of, I want to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. I don't want to hoard that. I don't want to, to hold for myself that which is due to him, and therefore I will get myself about the work of spreading the word, spreading the gospel message of Jesus.